Okay, we're going to talk about making a difference today. And if occasionally during the message I stop with a particularly heroic pose, it's because Janice down here taking pictures. I think she wants visual proof for the rest of the family that someplace a congregation was desperate enough to have me deliver the message. <laughs> now, I underwent a lot of time pressure in the first service. You know, you've got to... It's pretty hard and fast because the trains have to run on time, but this service, there's a lot of flexibility, so the only thing standing between you and a one-hour sermon is hunger pain, so so we'll see how this goes. Now, we're going to talk about making a difference three ways today, and the first way we're going to talk about is is rising to the occasion. This is kind of a, a pivot point where you're brought to a time in your life where you've really got a chance to step up and to make a difference right then, right there in someone's life. I think I've been presented with this about three times, and I've failed every time. But I'm hopeful that after this message that you will be able to rise to the occasion. The other kind is, is in for the long run. Not all of us have the opportunity or, or the burden of, of being put in a situation where we, we really have to do something right then. Maybe you can make a difference over the long term, over your, your whole life and the people that you, that you influence in your life. And then the third way is, is standing your ground. That means that you're making a difference or you're attempting to make a difference. We, we don't always know. God knows. We don't always know. And you're, but you're attempting, you're doing your best to make a difference in an environment that, that may not be entirely positive. Now, how many of you all have seen the movie Gravity? Oh, more than the first service. Y'all may be with it after all. Those of you that haven't seen it, it's a very good movie, and I won't be offended if you put your fingers in your ears and hum through this, because I'm going to play an excerpt, and Sandra Bullock is orbiting the Earth in this government project, and she's doing just fine until debris that some government contractor didn't clean up slams into the space station and, and ruptures the integrity. All the air leaks out. And so time is, is ticking away for Sandra. She is, is facing... George Clooney's already gone. She's facing her death in space all alone. And, and we failed, in this fictional character, we failed to make a difference in her life. I'm dying, God. I know we're all gonna die. Everybody knows that. But I'm gonna die today. Funny that, you know, to know. But the thing is, is that I'm still scared. I'm really scared. Nobody will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. Will you mourn for me? Will you say a prayer for me? Or is it too late? Uh, I mean, I'd say one for myself, but I've never prayed in my life, so... Nobody ever taught me how. I'm 
For a Christian, that's the saddest thing you can ever hear. Nobody taught her how to pray. So we're going to talk about Joseph and Judah. This is, is making a difference. It's that pivot point. It's, it, it's stepping up. And the story of, of Joseph and, and Judah, Douglas Oaks said, differentiates between two kinds of heroes. There's the dynamic hero and there's the static hero. The static hero's character doesn't change. It's, it's constant. Whereas the, the dynamic character character his 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 uh, the dynamic hero his character changes and joseph in this is the the static hero and i've always had trouble identifying with joseph and and having in sympathy for him now i realize that he had some significant obstacles and the first one is is jacob's miserable parenting skills jacob had all these sons and he he kept lavishing, and it was pretty obvious, all his love and affection on Joseph, the youngest. And so you're looking at those guys, standing at him, looking like a hanging jury. Well, those are the rest of the sons, and they're not happy. And then Jacob uh, adds fuel to the fire by giving him this, this coat of many colors. Now, to show you cultural differences, I've always thought this looked like something the Grand Marshal of a pride parade would wear. But in, in biblical Israel, this was a big deal. And when he got the, the coat of many colors, the, the brothers were even more unhappy with him. And so that's bad enough. And then I think Joseph has Asperger's because he just can't keep his mouth shut. You've got this dream he has. Now, I don't dream very often. And when I do, they're usually about old girlfriends. And I have enough sense not to share that with Janet. But Joseph doesn't. He has the dream about the sheaves of wheat, and he tells his brothers, essentially, you'll all be bowing down to me. And that doesn't raise his, his status either. So naturally, the first time they can get him away from Jacob, they sell him into slavery. And he's gone. So Joseph is out of the picture for a while, and Judah is kind of by himself, and and Judah does not lead an exemplary life by any stretch of the imagination. One of the first things he does is he marries a Canaanite. God's pretty clear about that in the Torah, that you are not to marry Canaanite women. The Lord knows how weak and malleable men are, and if he puts us in this bad environment, a marriage to a Canaanite, she's going to lead you astray. Well, Judah does it. Then he adds to it by having two sons so evil that God reaches down and smites them, just wipes them from the face of the earth. Now, that's bad parenting. And then he refuses to allow one of the survivors, his third son, who managed to dodge the bullet, so to speak, refuses to allow him to marry the widow of one of the first two sons. Now, this isn't necessarily biblical, but it is cultural in Israel among Jews, and that's the way that was sort of Social Security survivors' benefits uh, before FDR. And he refused to allow Tamar to marry his son. And so then J- Judah consorts with prostitutes. Now, in this particular instance, it, it wasn't really a prostitute. It was, it was Tamar, and evidently that's extremely seductive clothing in the Middle Ages. It was, it was Tamar 
who came on to uh, Judah, who was extremely weak, and uh, he, he fell for it. And then he attempted to have her executed when, he wanted to, when she wanted to hold him to his, his obligation. And at the, uh, at, they're building the pyre, as you can see. She shows the evidence that it was her with Judah, and she managed to exonerate herself. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, or back with the Pharaoh, you've got Joseph. Joseph has the ability to land on his feet. I'm convinced when they threw him in that well, he he landed on his feet. And he moves into a position of authority in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is is one of the the Pharaoh's viziers, one of his his, uh, chief bureaucrats. And again, Joseph manages to have female trouble. This time, it's with Potiphar's wife who tries to seduce him. Now, I was when I was looking up images for this presentation, I was amazed at how racy some of these Potiphar's wife images were. You'll be happy to know I've chosen one that's rather sedate as she grabs Joseph's coat. That's the evidence that he, that he uh, was seduced. And, and I was thinking... Again, I have trouble identifying with Joseph. I was thinking that if Potiphar looked anything like Edward G. Robinson in the Ten Commandments, <laughs> that you might have been doing her a favor. <coughs> but that's not the way it worked for, for Joseph. And as usual, he was, he was thrown into jail. And, and there he is with the, uh, it's not the butcher, baker, or candlestick maker, it's the, uh, the butler and the baker, and Joseph is in the, the cell with them, and, and they ask him to interpret a dream, which he does. And then the Asperger's comes into play. He interprets the butler's dream and says, you know, this is temporary. Pharaoh is going to restore you to your position of authority. Everyone's going to live happily ever after. Then he gets to the baker, and instead of doing what I would do, which is, oh, man, I'm having trouble getting the signal. It's drifting. Whew, it's dark and mm, try me later. No, Joseph doesn't say that. Joseph says, you're dead. You'll be executed. So when the, the butler goes and is restored, Joseph had asked him to please remember me. Well, he doesn't. And it, it takes a while. And, and finally, Pharaoh has a dream. And the butler's thinking, God, do I call this Joseph? He has no social skills. What if he tells us Pharaoh he's going to die? Then we're all doomed. But he overcomes that, that, that unease and has Joseph come. He interprets Pharaoh's dream, and he becomes sort of Pharaoh's prime minister. His, if, how many watch Game of Thrones? The hand of the king. And so then Joseph and Judah come back together, Due to famine. Jacob sends Judah and all the brothers except Benjamin. Uh, Jacob has learned nothing from his bad parenting skills. He is now favoring Benjamin, the youngest. He sends all the older brothers to Egypt to find out if if they've got some food there because uh, he wants, uh, he actually, whoops, he wants to survive the famine and who wouldn't want to survive the famine? So the brothers go to see Joseph, and Joseph knows who it is. Joseph's no fool. And he asks about, he says, is everyone here? And Judah says, no, um, 
Benjamin did make the trip. Benjamin is at home with our father. And Joseph says, well, you know, that's good. But before I make a decision on whether I'm going to allow you to come here and, and eat our grain, I need to see Benjamin. And I don't know if he told him he wanted to see if Benjamin was a big eater or what, but he wants the whole family there. So Judah goes back to Jacob, and he says, look, this guy, I think I've got him where we want him. We're, we're negotiating, but he wants Benjamin. Jacob's not on that program. The last time he sent his youngest out, he never came back. So he says, no, I don't want that to happen. So Judah guarantees Jacob that Benjamin will come back. There, there is, is no chance. I, as your eldest son, I'll make sure Benjamin comes back. So they go back to, to Egypt. They meet with Joseph. Joseph says, yeah, everything's fine. Go get your father. Gives him Simon. And they pack up and they go. Except Joseph sends the highway patrol, or whoever it was at that time, behind them, and they find Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's pack. And so Benjamin is arrested. So this is the pivot point for Judah. We don't know if Judah knows that's Joseph. Judah doesn't know if Benjamin actually took the cup. What Judah knows beyond a shadow of a doubt is he didn't take that dang cup. Nobody asked him about it. And he knows that once again a situation where he has to go back and tell Jacob that the youngest is gone. It was his fault the first time, and I would like to think he's borne the guilt for that all these years. And now he's got to go back and tell his father that it's the same thing again. And so what happens is, in kind of a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice, Judah goes to Joseph and says, take me. Take me. And so Joseph knows that his, his heart has changed. They, they reunite. He, he reveals himself. And the brothers are united. And eventually, Jacob comes down there and, and he gets to see Joseph. And so, because Judah... Finally, after all these years of, of erring and sinning, steps up and makes a sacrifice that he makes a difference in the life of, uh, of Israel. So now we're going to talk about in the long run. How do you make a difference in the long run? You don't have this, this crucial point. This is a recruiting poster for Company E. 2nd Regiment, Vermont Volunteers. For those of you that don't know much about the Civil War, being a volunteer regiment was extremely important. So it was 2nd Vermont Volunteer Infantry. And it was organized around Tunbridge, Vermont. And you'll hear secular people and cynical people say that, well, you can't expect people to, to volunteer for the military unless they know they're going to get something out of it. They know they're going to get benefits, these fine VA hospitals, uh, uh, the waiting line's only six months now. We're moving things along for you. But that's not so, because Wilbur Fisk, 20-year-old school teacher, he volunteered. And in his, his writing, he said that he thought the union should be preserved. That was his reason, and he thought that this was something, this great civil war was something that if he didn't go, he'd regret it the rest of his life. And so Wilbur 
left his school teaching job and volunteered. And I, this is the, the, the front piece, the cover of the book he wrote, which is in paperback, Amazon has it. It's called Hard Marching Every Day, The Civil War Letters of Private Wilbur Fisk. And Wilbur went in as a private. He was a private for four years. They finally, towards in 1865, I think March, they made him a commissary sergeant. But he was happy to be a private. And I thought that this picture, for a long time, I thought it was taken very early in the war. Because you see that circular piece of metal there on the strap. That's called a breastplate. And the soldiers threw them away after about the first year because they were convinced that uh, the Rebs were targeting those. It was like putting a big red target on you and that that made it easier for it to hit you. Now, I got news for you. Marksmanship was so poor in the Civil War that you could have jumped up and down and asked to be shot, and they probably would have missed. So it, it made no difference. But in looking at this lately, if you'll see up on his hat, see that white cross? That is the Sixth Corps insignia, and they put it on their caps. And they didn't bring corps insignia in until Joseph Hooker was running the Army, the Army of the Potomac, and that was in 1863. So this is actually an older picture. And Wilbur, he's just kind of a guy that follows the rules. And so he, he wore that the correct way. But Wilbur also had an opinion, and, and generals were writing letters to newspapers, and correspondents, it's just like now, they got all the ink. And so he wrote back to his paper in Tunbridge, and he asked to become kind of a war correspondent. And he wrote him, he says, If you have given our superiors room in your columns to tell their story, I think privates ought to be represented in the press too, because we are largely in the majority and have the burden of the work to do. You never need to ask a private soldier for general information. He's the last man to get that. His circle of observation is very limited. He sees but little of what is going on and takes part in still less. But Wilbur had a, a very good sense of humor, actually. He wrote that, I have no more idea of the general's intention for this army than the sheep does that of the shepherd. And so he became a war correspondent. He wrote these regular letters. That is uh, part of the 2nd Vermont uh, camped in Fairfax. And he wrote about Picket duty. This, again, is, is Fairfax County. He wrote about picket duty one day, and it, it really struck me the way he looked at it. He said, at 5 o'clock in the morning, we march to our post again. It is still dark. When we reflect that we are standing on the outer verge of all that is left of the American Union and nothing but darkness and rebellion is beyond. People in D.C. still think that about Fairfax. And... and uh, Wilbur, and, and the second Vermont was in everything. They they started at the beginning, and they were part of the Sixth Corps breakthrough around the, uh, the siege lines in Petersburg, and they were at Appomattox. And he said that one day he wrote that, I'll tell you, some of our hard marches put one's patriotism severely to the test. And the reason that the second Vermont was, was able to stay so long is because the governor of, of Vermont, in contrast to most governors at that time, kept sending replacements to the units. When a regiment was mustered into the army, it had a 1,000 men. And because they were all locally raised, a state like First Minnesota was all raised from Minnesota. And governors got to appoint the colonels and the majors and the captains. And so they built up political prestige. So what they would do typically is 
a regiment would be organized and sent to the meat grinder, and it would never get any replacement. So, for example, 1st Minnesota, by the time Gettysburg came, 1st Minnesota had 189 men, and after Gettysburg, it had 80. And so it was no more. It didn't function anymore. But the governor of Vermont, Vermont kept sending men. And so you, the Vermont Brigade was at, at Antietam. The Vermont Brigade was at, at Gettysburg. They, they didn't see a lot of fighting. They got there late, and they were positioned over on Round Top after the big fight at Round Top. But they did go put down the draft riots in New York. And then they were, they were sent to Spotsylvania in General Grant's great overland campaign when they were going... To Richmond, and again, Wilbur's a soldier, and he writes, the rebels gave us a warm reception. They poured bullets into us so fast that we had to lie down to load and fire. A musket then is about this long, and so when the soldiers were finally forced to lay down, they had to roll on their back to load it, had to use the ramrod, put the powder in, and then they'd roll back onto their stomach to fire, and they'd roll on their back to load again. And he said, the first line gave away, and we were obliged to take their places. Our regiment lost 264 men in killed and wounded. And that was in one afternoon. He writes, this is a tree that was cut in two by mini balls at Spotsylvania. A mini ball is a, about the size, it's a little bit, well, it's about the size of the end of my ring finger. Wilbur writes, just a little of the rear where our line was formed, where the bullets swept close to the ground, every bush and twig was cut and splintered by the leaden balls. We all had our hairbreadth escapes to tell of. I could say, I had a bullet pass through my clothes on each side, one of them giving me a pretty smart rap, and one ball split the crown of my cap in two, knocking it off my head as neatly as could have been done by the most scientific boxer. So Wilbur is not in a condition, in a, in a situation, an environment that's conducive to thoughts, well, to thoughts about the hereafter, sure, because you may meet at any time, but thoughts about Christ. But also in the Civil War, you had the United States Christian Commission. They tended the wounded. They sent preachers to the, uh, to the, the forces, and Wilbur went to these uh, Christian Commission meetings. In the, in the winter of 1864, there was a great revival in the Army of the Potomac. A lot of men came to Christ. And, and Wilbur went to these, and he writes that for a missionary field, there is none half so promising as the Army, none half so white for the harvest as this. Some who've been with us and seen how easily great results are obtained have called it a revival. And it was. And after the war, Wilbur, his family had moved from Vermont to Kansas. After the war, Wilbur went to Kansas and started farming. And the next time we run into Wilbur, it's Reverend Wilbur Fisk. His brother wrote, the whole family is, is, kind of has a, uh, uh, a, a talent for subtle humor. His brother wrote, while laboring on his farm, something stirred in the heart of this man. Wilbur became conscious of an urge to be about his father's business in a more comprehensive field than the few acres to which he held title. So Wilbur Fisk becomes a pastor of the Freeborn Minnesota Congregational Church where he served for 34 years. 
And that's a record for Minnesota. Wilbur got all his adventure out in the Civil War. He'd done all his traveling and all his marching, and he was done. And he stayed here, and at the top he's described in memory see, of Reverend Wilbur Fisk, soldier, farmer, preacher. And one of his parishioners wrote about him, said he was an humble, faithful, and tireless worker. And when he was, when he was called home, they buried him, and that's his, his wife's name on the left. They buried Wilbur back in, in Kansas. So Wilbur didn't have the real emotional, well, getting shot at is, of course, emotional, but I'm talking religious terms. He didn't have the thing happen to him like it did to Judah. But for 34 years, he made a difference in that small town in Minnesota. The church isn't even there anymore. But the ripples of, of Wilbur's life there as a congregational minister spread all through. They may be, be rippling to this day. So that may be what, what you are called to do. Then the, the last thing we're going to talk about is, is standing your ground. And we're going to talk about a man named Steve Rainwater, which I met uh, when I still went to, uh, to First Baptist. Steve is a very handsome guy. I'm always a little nervous when Janet's around him. Uh, that's actually a better picture. He's, uh, he's extremely outgoing. He, he does a lot of things there at First Baptist. And I met him, met him really on a get-to-know basis, at this thing called Angel Food. Uh, Angel Food was uh, a group that was so incompetently run, they ran out of business giving things away. But at the time, they were, they were working. And once a month, at 6 a.m., a truck would come, a semi-trailer truck would come to Christ Chapel and we would unload this entire trailer to smaller trucks, and they'd go to, to different churches. And so I thought, this is perfect for Carl and I. Now, a lot of men and some women make the mistake that you all are, are you work in the vineyards for the Lord every day, but you leave your kids at home, and that's a mistake. Your kids need to see that being a Christian is not all face painting and listen to the sermon that sometimes it's work and sometimes it's no fun, but building the kingdom is work. And so I told Carl one morning, he was in middle school, I said, Carl, some grimness is coming into your life. We're volunteering for angel food. And, oh, it's 6 o'clock. And I said, no, that's when we have to be there. We're getting up at 5.30. 5.30? And so he would tinkle and moan until he got out of the car but you couldn't do all that griping around Steve Rainwater. He wouldn't tolerate it. He was too happy. He'd tease you. He would, he would talk to you. He would tell you jokes. And so Carl couldn't be grumpy. He saw. Frank lied to me. He said, you don't choke up in the second service. <clears throat> he was a happy warrior for Christ. And I remember one day, it was 6 a.m. we get there, 10 a.m. before the truck shows up. And uh, Carl had gotten out of the car because he had actually gotten to where he was, I don't know, 7th or 8th grader. But he would relate to these other Christian men. They'd talk about the Redskins. He'd tease them. And so he was seeing what adults do. And it was great training for him. But he was unhappy. Everyone's unhappy. Truck finally shows up at 10. 
It's January. We get it unloaded. We're finally done at, at, at noon, which is about three hours late. And so get, we're getting ready to go home. And uh, I told Steve, I said, well, now we can go home and rest. And he looked at the parking lot. It snowed that week. And he says, no, I think I'll stay and clean the parking lots. So there was a time later on in, in a summer when, when Steve was going to Zambia. This is, is him in Zambia. I, they have a lot of witch doctors in Zambia, and for a while I thought that was a demon, but I think it's a goat. <laughs> he was spending two weeks in Zambia, and I told Carl, I says, we've got to find somebody to take his place. And for a teenager, he said one of the most perceptive things I've ever heard. He said, which one? Because he had so many places. Anyway. I get sad about this because I failed him. This is him in Zambia. They're building an orphanage. That's Steve with the, the pastor, Yako. He's our missionary. He's a South African. And here he is at the airport. They're, they're getting ready to go home. The, the first time he went there, he came back and asked his dad. He worked in a family firm if uh, he could go back for another month because they needed to have a well dug. And so you're thinking, well, what's the problem? Where's the, you know, Zambia might be bad, but that's not, the, that's not the environment. That's not the negative environment. This all happened after the problem. The problem was years earlier. I'm sitting in a deacon's meeting, and they bring the First Baptist, and they bring the yoke fellows in, and Steve's one of them. And they see the meeting. They get the secret handshake. We all talk about this is our yoke fellow class, and, and for six months we're going to make him eat hot peppers and whatever the, the hazing was then, I forget. And so <clears throat> at the conclusion of that, they, they take the yoke fellows out, and then we talk about them, and then we welcome back. Except when they got to Steve's name, and, and they said, well, you know, I don't know if we really want him. And my ears always perk up. And uh, someone said, why? And they said, well, he hugs people. And this is true. He does hug people. In fact, what I do, I don't like hugs. Uh, Lynn will tell you. I think if a handshake was good enough for Ernest Shackleton, it's good enough for me. So what I do is I send Janet through twice (laughs) when we see him because she doesn't mind. And they were talking about, oh, he hugs. People were complaining. And so I was thinking, I always jump to the wrong conclusion. I'm thinking that, well, we had had a youth pastor that went to jail for having a relationship with one of the, the girls in the youth. And I'm thinking, we don't want a, some pedophile as a deacon. And uh, I didn't ask the question, like, what does this guy do in the church? What's wrong with giving someone a hug? Does he, does he chase people down the, uh, down the aisle in the sanctuary? How many have complained about this egregious touching? I didn't do any of that. I went along with them, and they told Steve, well, we don't think you, you're, you're not quite deacon material. The next sound you would have heard if it had been me was the door closing and you never would have seen me again. But everything I told you about, he did after that meeting at First Baptist. And if you want to meet Steve Rainwater on a Sunday, you go to that middle door because he's still there, not a deacon. He's not good enough to be a deacon. He's still there at that front door Greeting visitors and giving hugs. So, 
Now the, the question is, and you're making a difference, what does God want? How many of you all have Netflix? That's pretty good. There's a movie on Netflix called Machine Gun Preacher. It's a perfect family movie. <laughs> you've got Gerard Butler for the women, and you've got machine guns for the men. It's, it's one of the finest theological movies I've ever seen. It's, about a, it's, a, it's a real story about a guy named Sam Childers from Pennsylvania. Sam was a, a biker, motorcycle biker, gang member, drug dealer, and a thug. And his wife came to Christ while he was in jail. And then he gets out of jail. And it's a little like Lee Strobel except with penitentiary. It's made such a change in her life that he starts going. And he becomes a Christian. And he goes over to the Sudan, and uh, he sees these orphans. Uh, Joseph Coney, who's still alive, was, was kidnapping orphans, killing villagers. And so he wants to build this orphanage, and he comes back, and he's gotten a church kind of by accident. And he's talking to his parishioners, and he is telling them what God wants. actions you give service to the lord he's not interested in your good intentions your good thoughts no he wants your backs your hands your sweat your blood to pour into the foundation that will build up his kingdom Amen. and that's what he wants he doesn't want your good intentions those are cheap and if you do watch the movie on Netflix, watch it till the credits because you see the real Sam Childers, and he's half again as big as Gerard Butler. He's a really big guy. And now if you're sitting out there and you're feeling a vague disquiet, that's not hunger. That could be the Holy Spirit working on you. It may be time. The place that you start making a difference is internally in yourself. So when Neil's up here, well, we want a competent theologian to meet you, not someone like me. When Neil's up here and, and Mark's playing the altar call, if you feel like it's time to start making a difference in your, in your life right here and now, I invite you to come forward.